0: Luther opened the door to reading the Bible without the church, and he couldn't close the door behind him. And that's what everybody in those movements does now, to the point where they all disagree with things that Luther said, like, for instance, what he said about Mary. (laughs) So what happened is Luther's idea caught fire. His idea that you didn't need to read your Bible with the church caught fire and begins to burn down long-held Theological ideas that the church had always had that were integral to all of these ways that the church thought theologically.
1: Hello and welcome to another salty episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken, and for a limited time, Kenny. And uh, we've been going through how we all, in our various Protestant worlds, came around to not just being okay with, but actually believing wholeheartedly what the Catholic Church teaches about Mary. I was a Wesleyan, Nazarene, Free Methodist. Ken Hensley was a Baptist pastor. Kenny Burchard was a Foursquare pastor, planted a bunch of churches. Well, I don't know about a bunch, but he tr- he planted <laughs> at least one. At any rate, we all came around to uh, believing that what the Catholic Church claims about Mary is actually true. And mm-hmm. you're probably as confused as we were several years ago on that question. We're going to dive into this here pretty soon, but I want to make sure to get the bu- business, the housekeeping out of the way. Check out old episodes by going to CH Network. org. You can also, by the way, plug into our online community. That's very simple to do, community.chnetwork.org. And our goal is to make all this free to anybody who comes to us with questions. And if you want to support our work so we can keep doing that, it is (coughs) chnetwork.org slash compass to uh, become a supporter. So (sighs) we're now at part three of our series ...on the Immaculate Conception, and anybody who's been watching the last two episodes, we did one on Mary as Woman, the New Eve. We did the last week uh, with all the terrible Indiana Jones references on Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant. And some of you are saying, what do you mean, part three on the Immaculate Conception? You haven't talked about the Immaculate Conception yet in these three episodes. Well, we're going to today, and we're going to explain why we did all the other stuff in the other two episodes. But first... Let me just read what the actual definition of the dogma is as restated in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It is this, and I quote, The dogma proclaimed in Christian tradition and defined in 1854 that from the first moment of her conception, Mary, by the singular grace of God and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, was preserved immune from original sin. So, with that on the table, Ken, if you could, let us know where we're going to go with all this today.
2: Let us know. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, you did a little bit of it yourself. Uh, I'll just summarize quickly. What we've done the last two weeks is we focused on what we could call, I guess, the biblical framework. It has, I'd have to say some of the biblical material, talking about Mary as the New Eve, the archetype of woman and the biblical theology of woman in the story of salvation history and then last week talking about Mary as the ark of the new covenant the embodiment if you will or the, the fulfillment of the old testament ark of the covenant which we view as typology that is then fulfilled in the ark of the new covenant which is Mary so th- th- there's there's so much more biblical material ac- actually but that's what we've covered in the last two weeks now one of the reasons that is often given by protestants for dismissing the dogma of the Immaculate Conception as being a a um, depraved and heretical Catholic invention <laughs> is the fact that it wasn't formally defined until 1854, and I was a Protestant for many many years. I understand that. I feel that to my bones. You know the just the right. the kind of a response to that of you know how can the Catholic Church come out in the middle of the 19th century and Invent a new doctrine, you know, define a new doctrine, which is taken to mean invent. And, and then set this forth as something that Christians must believe. It's just preposterous. Well, anyway, this is the question that we asked ourselves when we were Protestants as well. And in this episode on Mary's Immaculate Conception, we want to address this criticism, this question head on. Um, how in the world do you define it as dogma? something in the middle of the 19th century. Isn't that insane? Doesn't that just prove, uh, just on the face of it, doesn't that prove that the doctrine is just a crazy invention of the Catholic faith? So that's where we're going to go. And Kenny, why don't you go ahead and kind of give us the lay of the land before we jump into the specifics um, of the historical information?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I sure will. Uh, And Ken, tying into what you, you just said there, one of the first things that I heard from a fellow Foursquare Ex Catholic pastor when I became Catholic was the very thing you just said. Hey, Kenny, did you know that the Catholic Mm -hmm. position on the Immaculate Conception wasn't defined as dogma until 1854? Mm Hmm. And, uh, (laughs) like this was going to be the silver bullet, right? To talk me out of being Catholic. And, As a Catholic, as a, and I I will say this, as a biblically, a biblical thinking Christian who watches what happens in the New Testament when errors begin to arise, they happen over the course of time, don't they? They happen in succession to one another. And so as Catholics, we know that, um, there's no time stamp on error and heresy. (laughs) I mean, there's not this certain amount of time in history where heresies are allowed to come out or disputes are allowed to be had. Uh, they happen over the course of time, and ideas emerge over the course of time. And it's the church's job when these errors emerge to the point where they it becomes a crisis point, uh, where there's division and dispute, that the church in every generation has a responsibility to speak sometimes in definitive and dogmatic terms. And so the reason is the same reason why the Church didn't define the dogma of the Trinity along the lines of the Nicene Creed until into the mid-300s, right? Because that's when the crisis and dispute happens. And so what we're saying is the reason why it's a late dogma in in simple terms is that it was something that was always believed by the Church— It came into dispute at a huge level post-reformation and the dogma needed to be, uh, needed to be defined. Um, the other thing I would say is that word that you used, uh, Ken, just a second ago, this, this almost, um, synonymous, you know, back and forth between the word, uh, definition and invention. The Catholic Church doesn't invent dogma it only defines dogma and by that we mean that the church says what christianity is and what christianity isn't it says what the church believes and what the church doesn't believe in definitive terms not in in invention terms and so mm. when we say that the dogma was defined in 1854 we may we mean in the face of all of the other disputed ideas about Mary that had emerged later, the time came to define and to exclude what was and what was not the Christian understanding of, of this dogma. And so we're, we're not dreaming up new ideas later into church history. So, mm-hmm. uh, we have been providing this, this, this biblical framework and now we need to say, How did these ideas emerge over history? And that's kind of what we're going to be covering today, isn't it, Ken?
1: And just before, Ken, I I toss it back to you, if I could just jump in and say, every Protestant Mm -hmm. Christian, all of us as Protestant Christians would have held to this principle if we were to, for example, see a postmodern biblical scholar say, well, the idea of Jesus as God uh, is sort of invented a few years down the road uh, because we don't really see it, you know— We see it kind of formally defined Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the consubstantial thing popping Mm -hmm. up the Council of Nicaea. We'd be like, no, come on, man. Mm -hmm. We got plenty of evidence that says that Christians held that he was God beforehand. But again, it also goes back to an example I used before. Uh, There's a reason that there's a sign in your local public pool that says no diving head first in the kiddie pool. And that's because (laughs) some knucklehead tried it. It doesn't mean that people didn't know. All along, you weren't supposed to do that. It just means that once people start doing it, then you have to post something. Right. So, so Ken, yeah, how can we make that claim then when it comes to this idea about Mary that it goes back farther than the definition of the dogma?
2: Well, okay, we have to dig into history now. Uh, we need to perform something of an audit of the writings of the church uh beginning with the fathers and leading up to the time of the reformation and beyond and let let me say at the beginning uh that while we do not find a dogma of the immaculate conception spelled out in the early years of the church and uh you know put together and defined properly as it is later on well what we do find from the beginning though is wide testimony to the absolute purity of Mary. And we find from the beginning, um, throughout the church, we find statements being made that I would never have made um, as a Baptist pastor. And so what I would say to those who are listening that may uh, maybe non-Catholics listening, is as I read, and I'm, I'm gonna read quite a bit, just quotations from various fathers and from church history, ask yourself as you listen to these, is this something that i would say from my pulpit if you're a pastor or is is this something that is this something that you would ever hear me say okay because again my point is that while we do not find a fully developed and defined doctrine of the immaculate conception we find the church speaking about mary in ways that no protestant i know of now will speak about mary except maybe some very very high church anglican or something like that okay first of all mary is the new eve in the early church. And the comparison that is drawn between Mary and Eve is always a comparison between Mary and Eve before the fall into sin, okay? Now this is a theme that is developed by Justin Martyr in his dialogue with Trypho, uh, developed by Saint Irenaeus in his work against heresies. We find it developed by Tertullian in his work on the flesh of Christ, by Saint Cyril of Jerusalem in his catechesis, by Epiphanius, and many others as well, so what I'm saying here is that very early on, we find this Mary as the New Eve discussed and uh, and um, and developed in the earliest writings of the post-apostolic church. We also find the church talking about Mary as the Ark of the Covenant. I, I'm mentioning this too because this is where we came from, and we're going to move forward from here. Um, Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. And when this is mentioned, this is always, always taken to imply her purity, her stainless purity, her holiness, her immaculate heart. For instance, here's St. Athanasius, I mean, the great St. Athanasius, who was the first to present a list of the exact 27 books that we have in our New Testaments, the same Athanasius that was the great defender of truth at the Council of Nicaea. Here's St. Athanasius writing about Mary. O noble virgin, truly you are greater than any other greatness, for who is your equal in greatness? O dwelling place of God, the word, clothed with purity instead of gold, you are the ark in which is found the golden vessel containing the true manna, that is the flesh in which divinity resides. You carry within you the feet, the head, the entire body of the perfect God. You are God's place of repose. Okay. In in fact, when, when it comes to the absolute purity of Mary, we find this all over the patristic writings. The Father's speaking of Mary in ways, again, that I would have never dreamed to speak of Mary, and I just read one of them from from Athanasius. But listen to more. This is from Hippolytus, who lived between the years 170 and 235, very early. He speaks of Mary as, quote, the tabernacle exempt from defilement and corruption, unquote. Here's Origen. His date's 185 to 253. He calls Mary, quote, worthy of God, immaculate of the immaculate, most complete sanctity, perfect justice, neither deceived by the persuasion of the serpent, nor infected with his poisonous breathings. Again, I have never heard an evangelical pastor or anyone like that mumble anything like what we're reading right here. Just keep that in mind. Here's St. Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, from 374 to 397. He insisted that Mary is, quote, "incorrupt." a virgin immune through grace from every stain of sin. Incorrupt, a virgin immune through grace from every stain of sin. A, a, a virtual statement of the Immaculate Conception right there. Here's St. Augustine. His his years are 354 to 430. Augustine declares that everyone has known sin, and now I'm quoting, except the Holy Virgin Mary, of whom, for the honor of the Lord, I will have no question whatever where sin is is concerned for from him we know what abundance of grace for overcoming sin in every particular was conferred upon her who had the merit to conceive and bear him who undoubtedly had no sin that's on his in his treatise on nature and grace okay there's some of the western fathers but when we look to the east and we look to the writings of the syrian fathers we find them continually extolling the immaculate sinlessness of Mary. For instance, in the fourth century, St. Ephraim, he died in 373 AD, he praises Mary's grace and sanctity. Listen to St. Ephraim. Only you, Jesus, and your mother are more beautiful than everything. For on you, O Lord, there is no mark, neither is there any stain on your mother. Most holy lady, mother of God, alone most pure in soul and body, alone exceeding all perfection of purity, alone made in thy entirety the home of all the graces of the Most Holy Spirit, and hence exceeding beyond all compare even the angelic virtues of purity and sanctity of soul and body. My Lady, Most Holy, all pure, all immaculate, all stainless, all undefiled, all incorrupt, all inviolate, spotless robe of him who clothes himself with light as with a garment flower unfading, purple woven by God, alone most immaculate. And then quoting from the Catholic Encyclopedia about St. Ephraim, it says this, to St. Ephraim, Mary was as innocent as Eve before the fall, a virgin most estranged from every stain of sin, more holy than the seraphim, the sealed fountain of the Holy Ghost, the pure seed of God, ever in body and in mind, intact and immaculate. And just, you know, again, just sit back and just open your mind and your ears to listen to this. A few more quotations. This is from Maximus of Turin, 380 through 465. He calls Mary, quote, a dwelling fit for Christ, not because of her habit of body, but because of original grace, unquote. Here's Theodotus of Ancyra. A bishop who attended the Council of Ephesus in 431, he describes Mary as, and I'm quoting again, a virgin, innocent, without spot, void of culpability, holy in body and in soul, a lily springing among thorns, untaught the ills of Eve, nor was there any communion in her of light with darkness, and when not yet born, she was consecrated to God. St. Proclus of Constantinople, who died in 446, he writes, Quote, she was formed without any stain, unquote. Now, if this doesn't border on a def- uh, on a statement of the Immaculate Conception, I don't know what does. She was formed without any stain, quote, unquote. Jacob of Sarag, who died in 521, he writes that, quote, the very fact that God has elected her proves that none was ever holier than Mary. If any stain had disfigured her soul, if any other virgin had been purer or holier, God would have selected her and rejected Mary. St. Sabas, 431 to 532, the Cappadocian hermit writes this, quote, It is evident and notorious that she was pure from eternity, exempt from every defect. And then one more quotation from the East here. Andrew, the bishop of Crete, who lived between 660 and 740. Andrew was entirely devoted to the church's teaching on the stainless purity of Mary, and he preached about it often. In a homily that he preached on Mary's nativity, he calls Mary, quote, the queen of nature, the first fruits of our race, whose birthday we celebrate, whose swaddling clothes we honor, and whom we venerate as the source of the restoration of our fallen race. And he isn't saying that she's the savior. He's focusing on the fact that she is the channel through which the restoration of the fallen human race came, meaning that Jesus was born through her. In the same homily, he says this, This is Mary, the Theotokos, the mother of God, the first to be liberated from the original fall of our first parents. She was the first, he says, to be liberated from the original fall of our first parents. Andrew believed, in fact, that God had prepared the Holy Virgin Mary in advance to make her worthy and capable of being his mother. One final quote from him. A place had to be prepared, he writes, before the king's arrival. The royal garments had to be woven before they could receive the royal child at his birth. Finally, the clay had to be prepared before the potter's arrival. All of this intimating what what essentially we find in in the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. God preparing a vessel, pure, stainless, immaculate, for the king of kings, the lord of lords, to come into the world. Okay, in other words, let me do a little summing here. When we survey the writings of the fathers, both East and West, I don't think that it's hard to see that Mary's immaculate purity, even from conception in many of these quotations, was a common belief, a common Christian belief. These fathers, these theologians, these bishops, they don't define a precise doctrine at this point, but the essence of their view is clear. In fact, the Catholic Encyclopedia is willing to assert this, and this is important, quote, no controversy over the Immaculate Conception, wait, there was no controversy over the Immaculate Conception on the European continent before the 12th century. Before the 12th century. And then at the time of scholasticism and high scholasticism during those years, beginning with the 12th century, we do find controversy. St. Bernard of Clairvaux is involved, St. Gregory the Great, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure. But even here, the controversies surround questions of, of, of how we are to properly understand Mary's sinlessness. Essentially, the fact that she is sinless and without sin is essentially universal within the church up to that time. And this belief continues on to the Reformation through the Reformation and beyond. In fact, in Martin Luther's personal prayer book, we read this, Martin Luther, Mary is full of grace, proclaimed to be entirely without sin. God's grace fills her with everything good and makes her devoid of all evil. Now, while John Calvin accepted the, yeah, I'm talking about Calvin. John Calvin, he accepted the perpetual virginity of Mary, writing at one point this, I quote, Helvidius has shown himself to be ignorant by stating that Mary had many children, just because in several places they are spoken of as brethren of Christ, unquote, in Scripture. So even though Calvin accepted the perpetual virginity, he did not accept the sinlessness of Mary. On the other hand, in the writings of the other great Swiss reformer, Zwingli, we find a number of statements, including the following, and I'm quoting him here, I speak of this In the Holy Church of Zurich, and in all my writings, I recognize Mary as ever virgin and holy. Another quote, I esteem immensely the mother of God, the ever chaste, the immaculate Virgin Mary, unquote. One more quote. It was fitting that such a holy son should have a holy mother. Now, you know, again, not exactly expressions or definitions of immaculate conception, but These are all statements I've read here that you would never find on the lips of a modern evangelical on a modern Protestant. So, you know, again, I'm not saying that Zwingli believed in the Immaculate Conception or that Martin Luther had a divine view and accepted the Immaculate Conception. What I'm saying in this audit of church history is that Mary's purity is something Christians insisted on from this, from the get go and Up to the time of the Reformation and through the time of the Reformation, this is simply the way that Christians spoke about their mother, Mary. This is the way Christians spoke. Even employing at times, I think you probably heard it, the exact language that we find in the dogmatic statement of 1854, that is this word stain, Mary being without stain, Mary being stainless. This is what we find.
1: And you find it, by the way, once you're on the inside of Catholicism, that it's not sort of like this Mary thing that's isolated out from the rest of – it sort of just like naturally Mm -hmm. sort of flows. She doesn't have – she looks really exalted from the outside, looked really exalted to all of us because we have sort of isolated this way of thinking of her outside of, you know, the world of the fathers that you Mm -hmm. just mentioned all the way up through uh, the 1200s. I just want to have a little note on math uh right before we get into why this had to be defined in mm-hmm. the 1850s you know you're throwing a lot of church fathers out and a lot of dates and it can be easy for us to kind of misunderstand those early sources like you mentioned like Justin Martyr or or Irenaeus and you know we'll hear a date like you know Justin's born in 100 AD or Irenaeus is writing in 180 AD and it can be sometimes hard for us to realize how close that is uh, because, well, I'll give you an example. Uh, I'm early forties. I have a grandfather who's early nineties, meaning he was born in the thirties, meaning that anybody who is age 70 or older when he was born had grown up during the civil war. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that's me one move away from the civil war (laughs) in 2022. Mm -hmm it's nuts so that it's not like when irenaeus is writing in the 180s and making statements like mary being the new eve and making these kind of uh comments about her with such force it's not like oh that's so long ago that we can just make up legends about it no he was right he was just a move or so away so that being said once the reformation hits a few hundred years pass right uh mm-hmm. and so what is happening in this time period that causes the church to have to say something definitive about something that was not really an issue mm-hmm. up until that point.
0: Yeah, uh and I can jump in here Matt with that. Mm-hmm. You know, the the show here, this this program that we're doing is called On the Journey, right? On the Journey with Matt and Ken and mm-hmm. now Kenny. And so while we're, you know, providing all these <laughs> data sets and audits of historical quotes, and and so forth, what we're also doing is saying, how did we live inside of our Protestant worldview and then come to not think as Protestants and move over and, and to think mm-hmm. as Catholics? And I think that that is um, important right here as you ask that question, Matt, what happened? Um, what happened is 350 years of... Um, bible alone thinking and because if we can go back to the quotes that ken is is providing us with from luther and zwingli etc luther didn't march up the steps of the wittenberg chapel and nail anything about mary to the door of the wittenberg chapel there's <laughs> nothing there is nothing about yeah. mary in his protest against the catholic church in fact when he talks about mary mm-hmm. he talks like a catholic and so did and he was a catholic he was an august uh, augustinian father martin um so he's a catholic priest and he thinks like a catholic regarding mary well but luther does something that creates the answer to the question what happened he says everybody take out your bible You don't need the church to tell you what it means. You just read it for yourself and the Holy Spirit will tell you what it means. And you don't need a magisterium and you don't need church history and you don't need any of these things. You need the Bible alone. You are your own magisterium. Okay. So in the years, you know, proximal and following Luther, you can find, um, some very Catholic Marian thinking amongst Protestants, but the further you get away and the more this this idea that you only need the Bible, you don't need to read the Bible with the church seeps down into the mindset of people with their Bibles, well the more they start doing that, they start doing something that we said we wanted to stop doing. Uh, uh, they they or, or I'll say it the other way, they stopped doing something that we said we wanted to start doing. Mm-hmm. We wanted to read the Bible with the church. And Luther opened the door to reading the Bible without the church, and he couldn't close the door Mm -hmm. behind him. And that's what everybody in those movements does now to the point where they all disagree with things that Luther said, like, for instance, what he said about Mary. (laughs) So what happened Mm -hmm. is Luther's idea caught fire. His idea That you didn't need to read your Bible with the church caught fire and begins to burn down long held theological ideas that the church had always had that were integral to all of these ways that the church thought theologically. And so what I like, okay, I I got introspective about this myself on my journey. So what would I call that in myself? Because I, I was doing that. I was reading the Bible. For myself. So if someone said the Immaculate Conception of Mary, I would say, Oh, that's ridiculous right here in the Bible as I read it. I don't see that. And the term that I use for myself is I would, I'll call it theological, biblical, and ecclesial amnesia. And I'd even add the word (laughs) congenital, congenital, which means I was born with it. Okay. So I came into Christianity not through Catholicism, but th- through other evangelical non-Catholic groups who had this ecclesial amnesia about Mary. And I was born with that ecclesial amnesia myself. So when we talked about Mary, we talked about her with these mindsets. That we, we, we can't remember anything about Mary the way Catholics talk about it. Therefore, it must not be true. And so what I had and what i brought with me for years was a christianity that was highly gappy highly uh clunky in terms of its of its memory and so when you when you say well what happened in 1854 i was telling ken a couple of days ago it reminds me of a couple that i was counseling several years ago when i was a pastor and it was at the 13 year mark of their marriage. They said, we're getting a divorce. That's it. We've had enough. And I said, gosh, it's been 13. You've been married for 13 years. Why now? And the husband said, because of the previous 12 years, this 13th year is the result of these, this previous 12 years. And I thought that's really a profound statement. And as I think about what happens in 1854, why now? Why now? Well, because of the previous 350 years of a progressive or regressive congenital ecclesial biblical historical amnesia about what the church had always been saying about Mary. It's probably a good, a good place to, for me to stop because, because I have more to say, but, but there's my not so short answer as I think about my own journey.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I think that image, I hadn't thought of that before. I think that, that image of theological amnesia is a powerful way to state it. And, and, and you can see why that would be a progressive thing. Because at mm-hmm. the beginning, when, when Luther says, you know, I stand upon scripture, scripture is my foundation. My conscience mm-hmm. is, you know, captive to the word of God. And the other reformers begin to practice that as well. They're still living within a Catholic worldview. And they, they haven't forgotten. So they carry a lot of this through. It's only over time as people are born without that and born without that, that this amnesia sets in. Mm -hmm. And, um, they kind of reach a position where it's like, I don't care what anyone before me had to say. Right. You know, I, you know, I I don't care. You, You know, I think of my associate pastor who said one time, you know, my wife had quoted Polycarp on, regarding baptismal regeneration he said oh polycarp can go fish you know who cares what polycarp had to say right without considering that polycarp was a disciple of john polycarp is very early i want to know what polycarp has to say about the faith because he was there to hear it he was there to learn it but anyway
1: yeah kenny here's the question if i could just jump in on that very quickly yeah Uh, we see this in in a whole bunch of other different arenas too right so you old guys, uh especially you hensley were alive during the height of the the march of the sexual revolution well that was one generation of stuff and then the next generation gets another step removed from that right Right, and then so on and so forth and you grow up with a kind of a moral amnesia as to you know kind of what a family ought to be or look mm-hmm. like and to a certain state of the world where like nobody is everybody's kind of afraid to say what a family should look like right um because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. there is enough moral amnesia and emof- enough generational removal and this is just we're talking like what like 60 years right so this is not that long yeah. and you can see yeah. how just in that on that one particular question and you can take any question that you want to right uh and and do that kind of dissection over time and see how it wouldn't take long for you to get far afield from the assumptions that your great grandparents would have had about that would have been created the backdrop for you to think that way
2: about marriage and family and children and about sexuality and the proper use yeah yeah that's a great illustration matt how this amnesia can settle in and just a just a while 50 60 years but I have a question I want to ask you Kenny because this is a question that I'm asked from time to time as I deal with Protestant pastors and have these conversations and all in fact one of them just recently asked me this question uh, relating to the Marian dogmas especially he basically said okay but Ken why would the church take an issue this divisive an issue upon which there's so much disagreement and in an age in which you know uh you know ecumenism, we're wanting to find ways to to unite with our separated brothers and sisters um to bring the church together, why would the Catholic Church step forward and dogmatically define something that there's so much disagreement over in eighteen fifty four Why in the world would they do that, and in a sense, to separate cause more separation, yeah. Uh, how do you respond to that?
0: Um, I, I I respond to it regularly, <laughs> but how I would how I would respond to it now would be a, a few things. I would say okay. The first thing I would say is let's to my to my friend. Well, let's make it me. Let's say I'm the guy, Ken, because you you were kind of like a counselor to me before I became. A Catholic. This is something that
1: you do for the coming... Oh, this explains so much. I know. This explains (laughs) so much. That's how you got messed up. That's how you got
2: messed up.
0: So, but the the point, the point is, is that you help guys like me who aren't Catholics yet to, you know, make their journey into the church. And then even after we become Catholic, you help us uh, think like Catholics. But uh, I'm going to imagine that I'm now I'm Catholic Kenny and I'm Hanging out with not Catholic Kenny. Like, this is a Gollum moment, mm-hmm. right? Uh, where I'm talking to my mm-hmm. alternate personality. And I start coming out with some of my previously held anti-Marian ideas, uh, that I think are perfectly biblical. And Catholic Kenny says, Hey, uh, hey, uh, Protestant Kenny, I've got a time machine. It's a church history time machine. And I'm going to do with a little, a little trip with you back in time. You and I are going to go visit multiple congregations across the ages of the church, and we're going to go listen to Christians talk about Mary. Mm -hmm. And you don't get to say anything. Uh, You you have to listen. Um, If I had gone back in time and listened to all the things that you quoted from all of those Christians across the ages of time, I would have been Mm -hmm. shocked as a non-Catholic to hear talk like that or flip the experiment another way and I don't I'm not there to listen I'm there to talk. Imagine that I go back in time into all these churches where all these homilies are being being preached that you mm-hmm. read from and the sermon hasn't begun yet and I stand up. Protestant Kenny stands up and says, "Hey, by the way, here's some thoughts I have about Mary." She was not always a virgin. She had lots of children with Mary. She was not born sinless. And I, I just start, you know, going out and throwing out all these things that we read. For instance, and in, you know, some of the comments that people leave on our stuff. I would have, yeah. I would have been called a heretic, really. I would have been called a, a false teacher across mm-hmm. almost all of the ages of the church. So, so that would, the first answer to the question would have been that. It would be brother, you know, brother Kenny. This is not the church being divisive. This is the church maintaining what it had always believed in the face of of a divisive, contrary dispute in the other direction, not by faithful Catholics, Mm -hmm. but by people who were thinking about this in a way that had been different from how the church had always thought about it. And to that, I would say this. It's the church's job to define Mm -hmm. things in dogmatic terms when they come to the level of dispute that they had arisen to in the centuries following the Reformation, especially regarding these Marian dogmas. I'm going to read a verse of scripture here, that the church, the, the, the teaching office of the church, the bishops of our church church take to themselves as a very serious thing. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Beginning at verse 1, it says, Thus should one regard us, or this is how people ought to think about us, Paul talking about the apostles, as servants of Christ mm-hmm. and stewards of the mysteries of God. So the the church the magisterial office the teaching office of the church has been entrusted with the truth of the gospel and i need to say i need to say one other thing about about this and then i got to stop talking for a minute but one of my favorite catholic theologians happens to be pope emeritus benedict the he has a great book on Catholic theology, Principles of Catholic Theology, in the very beginning of that book, he says that the job of the magisterium, that is the bishops, those like Paul and everyone who comes after them for the generations all throughout church history, have one job. Their one job is to say in every generation what does and what does not constitute Christianity. Think of that. The job of the bishops in every generation from that first group forward, the apostles all the way till today, is to speak definitively on what is and what is not Christianity. And so this is the faith that's handed on. So I would say to my Protestant self, Kenny, you are the outlier here. You, you are, you're the one with the theological anomaly. You're the one with the dispute. You're the one with the issue. You're the one that's saying something different than most Christians have said throughout the ages of the church. Why should the church change what it has always believed and taught and said and written and sung and preached? Because now at this moment in history, you have your Bible, you don't read it with the church, you don't read it with history as a an interpretive friend, you don't read it with all these other perspectives, but you want the church to say something different. You have amnesia, Kenny. Wake up! Okay, let, yes, let so, me let me stop.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I, I wanted to just jump in right there because if you go into, let's say you're hanging out with St. Irenaeus of Lyon, right? Yeah. In the 170s. And you pop up in the middle of uh, the congregation and say, listen, guys, um, I'm reading my Bible here, and Mary obviously had lots of children. I know it's, you know, 170 AD, and probably people, you know, may have less amnesia than me on this question. And you would say things like about, you know, Mary's sinless, or make these assertions that are kind of Protestant boilerplate, or were for all of us, right, about Mary. They wouldn't just say, you're a heretic. They would say... You're a heretic. Are you trying to deny the divinity of Jesus? <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> right. And I think that's, that's what they would have thought you were doing by saying that. They would have, their, their thing wouldn't have been saying, mm-hmm. you are a heretic. You're saying mean things about Mary. They would have been saying, you're a heretic. You're denying the divinity of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity.
0: I think that's an important point to make right here, Matt. And it's, you know, it isn't just. How do I want to say that Mary isn't a Catholic hobby horse or a honeypot or a one string banjo that we like to play? You know, Mary, what we're saying about Mary is, is imbued with Catholicity in, in the sense that what we're saying about Mary is tied to all kinds of strands of our, our faith and integrated, a Catholic faith, an integrated whole faith that embraces Lots of things. So, so what you just said is exactly right. Our, our Christology would be harmed if we speak improperly about Mary. Uh, our incarnational theology uh, about Jesus may be harmed if we don't speak properly about Mary. Our soteriology, that is how God goes about saving humanity in real and concrete history, might be harmed if we don't speak properly about Mary. Our ecclesiology, like what is the church, and what's our relationship to each other, our eschatology, what's going to happen in the future. All of these things are harmed when we think of Christianity as a game of Jenga, right? A game of Jenga where let's see how many sticks we can pull out and have Christianity still standing, you know, or a -a build-a-bear. Well, I don't like that doctrine, and I don't like this doctrine. I want to build my own Christian bear with my own doctrines. And it's just not a Catholic way of thinking. A Catholic way of thinking is that all of these things belong together. And when you start ripping them out, tweaking them, moving them around in the wrong place, you end up with something that essentially isn't Christianity, back to what Ratzinger said. It's the job of the bishops, the job of the magisterium, to say Mm -hmm. in every generation, this is what
1: Christianity is. All right. So we have gone through then— and. Man, there's, these are just such dense episodes for so many reasons, but, uh, we do need to, to kind of move to this yeah. next piece of the puzzle. Cause we've provided like all the scripture mm-hmm. and the tradition stuff, we at least as much as we can fit in the mm-hmm. section of the time we have <laughs> and, and why this all kind of matters. But let's talk a little bit about the magisterium and how it plays into this, especially kind of moving up to kind of the present day.
2: Yeah, it, it, except I want to say more things, Matt. I want to say like lots and <laughs> lots. No. We're make Kenny it two-hour episodes. Say, <sighs> Kenny wants to say more things. I, like I, I do want to say videos. this. I know. Okay, I'm the one who's gonna. Okay, I'm gonna talk about the magisterium, so I can do my lead-in. Okay, because this whole thing, you know, about theological amnesia and all that, is taking me all the way back to that that Second t- Thessalonians two fifteen, which is a key text for people who are coming toward the church, where Paul says. Hold fast to the traditions you have received, whether by word of mouth or in writing. And the understanding, which I didn't have before, the understanding that the apostles' teaching was conveyed in their writings. Yes, their writings reflect accurately what they taught, but it was conveyed as well in their teaching that as they went and they preached and they found, they won converts, they founded churches, and they instructed churches in everything they were to believe. I always think about Paul in Acts 15 saying that for three years in the city of Ephesus, with night and day with tears, he was communicating to the Ephesians the whole counsel of God. And then I pick up my letter to the, to the Ephesians, you know, six little pages, you know. And so, you know, I, and I'm not saying by that, the Catholic Church is not saying by that that they taught all kinds of stuff orally that they don't have in the Bible or anything like that. But the point is, that what we refer to as Catholic tradition um, is the, the full knowledge that the church had of the correct interpretation of Scripture, of, of what Christianity teaches. And this is what is handed down and preserved, treasured and loved, and kept pure by those stewards that you talked about, Kenny, that is the bishops all the way down. And so when it when you come to the Reformation and, and, and the And the word is said, no, no, we're going to stand on scripture alone. Then over time, I just think that image is so powerful over time. And and what Matt said about the sexual revolution is a beautiful analogy to this too. Over time, amnesia sets in Mm -hmm. where just like many young people today, they don't have any conception of, of how people thought about marriage and sexuality and all that before Protestants are born now into all of these separated communities and they have no memory of what christianity yeah. was yeah. of how christians spoke
0: and that's of the that's, total that's why i call it congenital amnesia you're born into yeah, it yeah. with the memory missing already
2: yeah, and you told me uh the other day when we were talking about this, you told me a story just very quickly that yeah. was really moving on the point and I want you to insert it. Do it do it quickly. Uh, but tell me about that person yep. whose mother had Alzheimer's and yeah, say, I, say uh, share share that.
0: I think this will be helpful here Ken and Matt because you know, we have these theological discussions, right? And we're doing apologetics and church history and all that stuff and people get really emotional about these Mary Questions. And I think, gosh, what accounts for this recoil? What accounts for this visceral, almost, you know, push away from the Marian dogmas when, when the, the reformers weren't having the same kind of response? And I was telling Ken about one of my dear friends who's an elder in our church when we were the pastor. His family and his parents came to our church. They were all part of our church together. And this, this man's mother now lives in a nursing home. She's older and she has dementia. She has Alzheimer's and he goes to see her. And we, we just talked to him the other day. And, and my wife asked um, them, did your mom recognize you? And he said, no, it's the strangest thing in the world. Here's a woman who, you know, gave birth to him, changed his diapers and bought him his school clothes, packed his lunch. Uh, raised him, helped him buy his first car, get, gave him his driver's got him his driver's license, was at his wedding, was in the hospital room with his grand, you know, with the grandkids. All of these memories are there, but something happens in the course of her life where into her mind a malady forms that begins to suck memories out to the point where now her own son goes into a room with her and tries to talk about mm-hmm. things that they had always known together, always thought together, always discussed together, and she treats him like she's never seen him a day in his life and like there's a stranger in her room. And when we have these discussions with people about these long-held Christian beliefs that go all the way back to the Bible in the first centuries, you can feel this this recoil that happens. And my, my proposal is that the cure to that, the cure to that recoil isn't for the church to just drop it, but rather it is for Christians who have this congenital amnesia because of the traditions that they were born into to plug their minds and their hearts back into the living memory of the church where all of that will flood back in and heal that recoil and restore them and bring the Catholicity of their faith back
1: into its proper place. Okay. I'll give you one more example that is a little less, uh, a little more visceral and crass. Uh, The other day, I, for some reason, was looking up lyrics to songs, and I found the old Tracy Chapman song from the 90s, the blues song, where she says, Give me one reason to, and for my whole life, I thought she had been saying, Steal. Give me one reason to steal, And I'll turn it back around. And I found right there in the lyrics, it said, give me one reason to stay here. And so I posted a thing on Facebook. I said, this is insane. I can't believe that I never knew these right words to the song. And every single person posted on that said, everybody knows that those are the right words to the song. You're the one who's nuts, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? And here I was thinking everybody else was insane. Right. And uh, it, it can, I mean, that's a very crass and weird example, yeah. but it, it can show you how I was angry at first. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you, pe- have you people all lost your minds? <laughs> and of course I was the one, I was the one who lost my mind. Yep.
2: Thou art the man. Okay. Listen, I, wart, I art we, the man.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. Over the last couple of weeks then we've looked at some of the biblical material and today we've kind of worked, we, we performed it somewhat of a historical audit and worked through the memory of the church that is the the history of this thought and and now we want to close by looking at the magisterium element scripture tradition magisterium and by magisterium to put it simply we're we're referring to the church's divine teaching office uh, as as you brought out Kenny even before you know we're talking about the bishops throughout the entire world in union with the bishop of rome as a special role who have been given the stewardship of the truth as paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1 the truth that continues through to this age. Now, I want to end this episode by actually reading from the apostolic constitution that defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. Ineffabilis Deus, or ineffabilis, ineffabilis, ineffable, Latin for ineffable God, unspeakable God, okay, God who cannot be spoken, written by Pope Pius IX in 1854. But well, I want to make a comment first. When you read this document, which is longer than just this statement, this definition, what you find is that before coming to the definition, Pope Pius IX spends a great deal of time laying out the full case for the Marian dogma with detail and with precision, including the history of its development. So he, uh, he spends pages noting how traces of this teaching, large traces, small traces, can be found throughout the history of the church. And he points to all the different places in the dogma of the divine maternity, Mary's being declared mother of God. We can find traces of this in the church's liturgy through the ages, um, in the writings of Christian thinkers across all of the ages and across not only time but geographically separated, Mm -hmm. in the visible Marian devotion of the church throughout the centuries, And I hope your mind is thinking back to many of those quotations that I read a little while ago, the intense devotion to Mary that is visible from outer space throughout the history of the church. Um, In some of the language of the Council of Trent in the 1500s, we see traces of this. In biblical scholarship, interpreters, commentators, who through the ages connected the Eve-Mary typology and the Ark of the Covenant typology and found the roots of this teaching in Scripture itself, but also in the written prayers of Christians, we see traces of this throughout history, in their hymns, in poems, in spiritual writings, in the artwork of Christians from the beginning, in the various feasts of the church. So there, there's a lot more than just theologians or or biblical scholars or something like that. We're talking about traces of this, and Pope Pius IX th- uh, spent some time dealing with this. Traces of this of, of this faith, the faith of the church, that you can see, in a sense, just seeping out through all the scenes, songs, poems, the feasts of the church, all of that artwork. In other words, before setting forth the definition of Mary's Immaculate Conception, what you hear Pope Pius IX essentially saying is, you know, is, look, you guys, what I'm about to define, this is what we have always held. Maybe we maybe we didn't define it like this. Maybe we didn't see it in all of its details. But this is what we have always held, and he's saying we have the receipts to prove it, and all of these traces scattered through all of these different um, elements of church history and theology and and um, and ecclesiology and, uh, and and the liturgical worship and all of it. Then he comes after all of this. He comes to the section of the document that is titled the definition, which I want to simply read so that. Uh, As it were, we kind of leave this ringing in your ears, and I'll hand it over to Matt to conclude after this. Here's the definition. Wherefore, in humility and fasting, we unceasingly offered our private prayers as well as the public prayers of the church to God the Father through the Son, that he would deign to direct and strengthen our mind by the power of the Holy Spirit. In like manner did we implore the help of the entire heavenly host as we ardently invoked the paraclete, accordingly, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for the honor of the holy and undivided Trinity, for the glory and adornment of the Virgin Mother of God, for the exaltation of the Catholic faith, and for the furtherance of the Catholic religion by the authority of Jesus Christ our Lord, of the blessed Apostles Peter and Paul, and by our own, we declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which holds that the most blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin, we declare that this is a doctrine revealed by God, and therefore to be firmly believed and constantly by all the faithful. Wow. When I read that definition in the light of the entire background and when I read how he sets it up with with, with his prayers and fasting and seeking the prayers of the, the, the heavenly host, you know, it's pretty powerful.
1: And it upsets one of the notions that I think all three of us had. And I think that has even shown up in some of the comments from people that I hope really I hope they go back and watch some of this. This is God's work god did this mm-hmm. right mary didn't do this <laughs> right she was pres- it's all passive language was preserved in view of the merits of jesus christ a privilege granted by almighty god yeah it's the language is powerful um and yeah i hate to say anything else to spoil the words of Pius the so we'll end it there but we got more we got more to talk about so in the meantime uh, we'd love to hear from you. Go back and watch the previous episodes, especially the last two, to hear kind of how the case got built to this point. Um, you can go to, and do that by chnetwork.org uh, and just click on the on the Journey program and, and find all the old episodes. And then you can come discuss it with us in our online community. That is community.chnetwork.org. And again, to keep this stuff um, out there and rolling and free for anybody who wants to check it out. And if you are a person, by the way, who was a pastor like Ken and Kenny was, ken and kenny were right if you're a pastor right now struggling with this stuff uh we have basically built an apostolate to serve people exactly like you so please do reach out to us um but support us so that we can help those people on the journey by going to chnetwork.org slash compass ken and kenny thank you again wow so great to be with you guys thank you thank you and thank you for watching another episode of on the journey with matt and ken and kenny talk to you next time around.